Hello, my name is John Hendren, and this is episode 58 of BachCast. In this episode, we're taking a look and listening to the first suite for solo cello by Johann Sebastian Bach, BWV 1007. And yet, that wasn't a cello, that was a marimba, a very sonorous marimba. Um, The performer there uh, is uh, a lady who goes by the name of Kuniko, and this is her Bach album, Solo Works for Marimba, and she includes three of the cello suites on this album, number one, number three, and number five. And I wanted to start it off with her rendition just because it's a little different, it's a little slower. She is playing in a very cavernous space, lots of reverb. Uh, There's a lot of room to let the music speak. And for me, it is a true arrangement. It's sort of, well, you're already familiar with the cello piece on the cello, and sort of this is sort of a, a refreshing take on it. My problem with that opening is it's a little slower, and I want to talk a little bit about the opening and a little about the jig. Now, there are... Uh, a number of pieces that make up a suite. We've talked about this before. And in this particular suite, this is called the prelude, sort of the introduction, if you will. Then there's an allemande, which is sort of a stately dance, stately meaning not too fast. Then there's the courant. Uh, he uses the, the French spelling here and uh, instead of the Italian corrente. And that's sort of a, you think of it as a little more of a running, a little, more, a little faster. Then we have a sarabande, a little slow dance in uh, three. Then we have menuet, and we have a pair of menuets. Uh, typically, these these will be coupled, one and two. And then a jig to end it. So there are uh, six movements in this particular suite. Uh, and in fact, six or seven uh, is is the norm for uh, box cello suites. They're, they're full of these dances. So... The thing that you notice here is sort of the arpeggiated flow. This repetition. And you may that may sound familiar to you. You're like, well, is that that other piece by Bach? No, there is another piece by Bach. Not the same piece. Uh, it opens the well-tempered clavier. Bach does sort of the same thing. He sort of opens things up with repeated arpeggios. The thing about the cello piece that we're just listening to, if we were to go a little further, is that it doesn't keep sort of the same repetition. It sort of evolves. Whereas in the the piece for the keyboard, uh, it's more more or less is lockstep. It's uh, a chord that's arpeggiated and then it's repeated uh, once each until you get to the very end. But it's kind of interesting that Bach would take that um, that idea and use it twice to open two different collections. On the keyboard, that kind of comes from a tradition where we would call that a lute-style piece, something that's plucked because of the strings, right? The repetition on the hands, yeah. If you can if you can place your two hands on the chord and then just kind of rotate it, go up and down, that kind of makes sense. But it makes more sense to where the style comes from if you were to hold, let's say, a guitar or a lute, uh, where you are 
placing your left hand down strings and you are arpeggiating with the right. So you get this sort of lute style. And what Bach is doing here is sort of making an homage to the fact that the cello is a stringed instrument. And we're sort of uh, emulating that style there. It's an effective piece. Uh, it's, I think, pretty well liked. You hear this piece a lot. And you hear it in all different kind of contexts. I've heard it in TV commercials. I've heard it in, uh, uh, of course, in movies. And you'll actually hear it more often than not on the radio. It's, it's a popular piece. And so let's go in and listen to this uh, performed on the cello. Uh, I have a couple different recordings, but the one I want to start with, and I have reviewed this recording. I, I went back. It's I reviewed it some time ago, and I always tend to think of this as like a recent recording, but I look at the date uh, in the computer, it's 2004. Uh, this was released on the Glossa label. The performer is Paolo Pandolfo, and guess what? He's not playing a cello. He's playing a viola da gamba. And so this is an arrangement, and what I like about it is how natural it sounds on this instrument. Now, the viola da gamba, so you know, the gamba is the Italian word for leg, and it's so it is the viol or viol that you would play off the leg, meaning it's kind of like a cello. It's it's a big instrument. It's got uh, a bridge. It's got a bow. It's got strings, and you're like, well, why isn't that a cello? Well, if you were to look at them side by side, they they have a different shape. Uh, the vi the viol is has sort of a, a maybe slightly over history. It has a different sound. It has more strings in the cello, and actually there's, you know, you can find models with different numbers of strings. And then the most unusual thing about it is it has frets. So you think of frets on a guitar, those are sort of glued onto the fingerboard, and they're set, right? So you don't have to worry about where the notes are, you simply cover the strings in the str behind the string where you want it, and then off the fret, that's where it sort of cuts off the string, which makes tuning and whatnot very easy. On an instrument like this, the frets are actually movable. So they're, they're basically like um, straps or strings that go around, and they can be adjusted for different tunings, which was, would have been important then because there weren't always, they weren't always playing equal temperament. So I'm going to let you listen to this opening, which I really like on the viola da gamba, to give you a sense of, I think, where this, um, to me, it's even a more uh, striking example of this, uh, what we might call the keyword, the, the lute style, but this arpeggiation that seems to just work naturally on a string instrument.
actually not where it ends, right? But that's sort of a neat, neat phrase to end on this high note. So we've been, we've, if you're looking at the formal structure of this piece, uh, it starts on a low note, boom, and the key of, sets the key of G, and then we're we end on this very high note. And if you're to look at the music and you know you see the arch, it's probably the highest note that the you know the instrument plays at this point. Uh, and so it's sort of a climax point. And then so you sort of recover after that and he tidies things up and um, brings you back home in, in a more familiar uh, range of the instrument. It's kind of a neat piece. I really like that performance. I like the way it sounds. Uh, to me, I'm not a gamba player. Uh, I don't going to pretend to understand what the strings are. But my my instinct tells me by the way it sounds, the way it's played, uh, is that that is very comfortable on the instrument, at least the beginning. It's just, it's basically like you put your fingers down and you're going across the strings and it makes it kind of natural. We're going to listen now to uh, a, a recording that's kind of important to me uh, because it was my first exposure to it. And well, I remember this coming out in 1984. My computer tells me it was actually came out in 83. And this was a, uh, a young cellist who was really uh, launching his international career as an adult. Um, and you probably know his name. He, he's a very well-known cellist. Uh, he has just released his third recording of the Bach Cello Suites, which in the notes, sadly, it says it will be his last. But this is um, the Paris-born uh, Chinese-American cellist, Yo-Yo Ma, uh, in his debut recording of the Bach Cello Suites. <laughs> And because I think comparisons are fun, let's listen to Yo-Yo Ma, same piece, from his newest album, Six Evolutions, that came out on the Sony label, he now in 2018. Structurally speaking, uh, Bach goes high again, 
Uh, and so he, this is a neat piece. It's it's a neat piece in this in many many senses. It opens a suite, but it's also like opening your ears. It's like a practice piece. It really opens up the instrument. We start in this very low note. So just so you thinking of of, of how a cello sounds, that that low note that starts as a G. Um, the strings of a cello are C G D A, just like a viola, but they are an octave lower than the viola. And so that that G is, you know, it's it's only five notes from the bottom of the instrument, so it is kind of deep. And then we end with this arpeggiation again, and we're stretching all the way to the higher range of the instrument. Uh, after that, that excerpt I gave you before, where it sort of <gasps> pauses, so Bach sort of it's like I think of it as like a yoga move, stretching your body. And then he, he does it again. Like, well, once we've done it, well, we might as well do it again for the finish. Uh, you stretch out again to that high high note. And then you get this beautiful ending arpeggiated uh, chord. Uh, played like an arpeggio, but written um, with, with multiple notes sounding at the same time. And uh, Yo-Yo Ma's newest recording same tuning. What's interesting about Yo-Yo Ma is in his second recording, which was released at the same time as a number of films that he was a part of making uh, a different film for each suite, he, and I don't remember ever reading this about it, but he records it at Baroque pitch, which is half a step lower. And so it's interesting as you're going back and comparing as that sort of adjustment to your ear of the difference in pitch. He also went through a, a period of exploring Baroque technique. He worked with uh, the Dutch cellist Jeep Terlinden uh, and released two recordings, I believe, called Simply Baroque and Simply Baroque II in collaboration with Ton Koopman, um, exploring Baroque cello repertoire on an instrument set up in Baroque style without an end pin. Um, so he went through that sort of exploration. I have to admire that about a... A mainstream performer. So Yo-Yo Ma is is born into emerges as a child prodigy, and is really brought up musically speaking in sort of that romantic romantic string tradition, and then really learns these pieces early in his life, plays them throughout his life, um, and decides, hey, I really want to get to the essence of these, and I'm, I'm going to take a look at the other side of the street, which is maybe uh, a historically informed performance practice. The second thing I noticed between those two excerpts I gave you from the 80s and 2018 is the the, the use of um, sort of the legato style, right? His first recording, um, pretty much throughout, uses a very, not a lot of space between those notes. We, we would say musically speaking, if you're going to play a line that's kind of the legato style. He doesn't totally abandon it here, but it's it's a little less um, prominent. And um, it probably is also more historically informed. But that's for musicologists and um, experts to tell us. But um, with my familiarity with the Baroque repertoire, I'm expecting that unless there are specifically lines in the music, uh, that the assumption would be that there's a little bit more space, and that's what he who he does here. So that's the opening of this this suite. Um, 
it's it's probably the most famous, the most uh, widely liked uh, of the preludes from the collection. So I gave you a taste of some of the other dances up through the minuets, so we still have the, the jig to listen to, but uh, those are performed by Bruno Coxe, a French-born cellist. He's also, um, you consider him a Baroque cellist playing um, on a period instrument. What I like about his approach, in especially in those faster movements like the courant and the, the minuet, is sort of the slightly faster tempo. Um, comparing him to Yo-Yo Ma is is problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one, the pitch changes that changes things just a bit. But more importantly, is the is the style recording. And I can't emphasize this enough, especially with solo repertoire. So while the opening of Kuniko's uh, Bach on the Marimba for me was really slow, like it really was too slow to appreciate. I think the piece. Um, but I said it can work for you because you may already have a reference to it. And so hearing it in new light on a new instrument and whatnot, um, uh, your brain's making this transformation. It's like, oh yeah, it's familiar enough. And if we slow it down, I can still reference the original. I, I really think that Prelude needs to have a little bit of uh, push to it in terms of the tempo. Uh, but what Kuniko's recording uh, betrays in uh, maybe speed, it, it, on the other hand, it has this beautiful 
um, almost echoey reverb around it, which is a beautiful sound. And we get a little bit of that in Coxey's recording. This this recording has been out for a while. It, uh, it's on the Alpha label. Uh, yeah, it came out in 2002. Um, so that part of the recording is is interesting in that he's playing in a much more reverberant space. I don't have the liner notes because I think I bought this digitally, but uh, my guess is this has been performed in a church, right? So you have this naturally tall space in, in the microphones, even though they're very close to the instrument. And that is a criticism I've read about this recording, and it's one that I, I share at some points in it, is that the microphones are really close to the fingerboard, and all the stuff that he's doing with his left hand is is really... Um, quite audible in the recording. And that may be offsetting to you, or that may be, you know, I want to hear what it sounded like if I was sitting next to him in this church. And in that case, you might have heard some of that noise. Um, but that's the trade-off, right? So we have Yo-Yo Ma's, which is in a reverberant, but very controlled, but on the slightly dry side in terms of the recording, his, his new one. And I do believe, by the way, I... I was certain when I started to audition this new Ma recording that I was I liked the sound, the recorded sound in the second version that he did. And uh, but doing some more comparisons, I actually think they they've done the best uh, sound engineering in the third one. Uh, it's intimate, but it's not too close. And so this recording is interesting because I think it's you know, if I were going to be a critic, I'd say the the microphones are a little too close to Mr. Coxey, but um, for what it is, he does play in a, a detached style. And so I wanted to have an example of that for you. What's difficult to compare, however, is because he's recording in a reverberant space, that detachment is harder to hear. Uh, it also may be deliberate. Uh, you're playing in that very open space and you want to separate the notes more so it doesn't all just smear together. And so these are the dynamics of playing. And a recording isn't telling us the whole picture. The recording is a is a mixture of things. But as a consumer, if you're going out and buying something uh, beyond the interpretation, which I would always argue is probably the most important aspect of how to choose a recording, um, to me, I always go back to the sound quality as well. And there's some dynamics there at play that um, make comparing them different. And would, I think, suggest that you pick up multiple recordings because um, you can enjoy uh, the benefits or the merits of multiple recordings. So I wanted you to also hear sort of a um, the Baroque style on the cello as well. So I, I provided you that little glimpse, and we sort of did a drive-by of the opening of those dances. I want to get and finish our podcast and focus on the jig, which... Uh, there's great music in there. I think the minuets are probably my third favorite. Um, the second minuet, which we didn't get to, goes into the minor mode, which is not an uncommon thing. Uh, you're playing all this major music all the time, and then you sort of need uh, contrast. And so when we do look at these binary pairs of dances, typically, especially with Bach, um, he will change the uh, the mode in the second one and then when you go back and perform the first one again as a repeat cycle you sort of end up in the in a the same and i know i'm going to say it's cliche the same happy place that you you began 
So we're going to now listen to the jig. And since you've been listening to uh, Mr. Cook say, I'm going to give you a listen to him and we'll compare his performance to some others. <laughs> If you're, if you're listening closely, what you notice about his performance is that he's sort of sort of grouping phrase-wise these um, sets of notes that make what I call microphrases, right? They're not the, not the big, long phrases we think of, especially when we get to romantic music, but it's these, these note groupings, and it's sort of... Um, uh, not everybody plays this way, I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, what I, I actually like it. I like how he's grouping the notes, and he's sort of grouping them in a way that that makes sense rhythmically but then there's these little spaces in between we heard it a lot more in the menuets i didn't i didn't bring mention to it before or after we listened to it but if you go back and listen to those menuets uh he plays in the same way but it's almost even more exaggerated which i think would be uh would make dancing to these pieces if we're going to consider them dances uh, very difficult because it's not a regular beat uh, instead, and I, the reason I sort of like it and endorse it and wouldn't really criticize it, I'm just pointing it out, it's a difference, is that it's, we are clearly in an instrumental medium. I do not think in box time anybody would have actually danced to these pieces, but I think the dance form, the, the tempo, the, uh, the concept behind them, and the accents that are part of what make these dances different would be recognizable. And so you'd hear it and you're like, oh, that, that's a Sarabond rhythm. Or you'd hear it and you go, oh, that's kind of like a jig, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be so precise that somebody's expecting to dance to it. Um, I always think, you know, Keeping Time, the famous um, Italian-born, but he was most famous in France, uh, Lully, uh, would beat time with a stick and hands is up. Uh, can you imagine playing an orchestra and hearing this this pounding on the floor, the big like a staff? Boom, boom. You know, I guess if they're drums there, it's okay. But uh, you wouldn't expect that with a cellist, play, cellist playing, um, uh, tapping his foot as he goes along. But anyhow, uh, I really like the recording. I like his performance of the jig, and I wanted to point out how those phrase groupings sort of. Um, is, is a little different than what we're going to hear in the next recording. Thank you. 
don't use often in my podcast, but to me that performance uh, by Peter Wispelway uh, is kind of badass. Uh, he just has exudes confidence with it. There's drive. There's intensity to it. And for all those reasons, I really like his performance of the jig. But I want you to hear the difference in how they are uh, approaching phrasing. Uh, Wispaway, uh, even though he is probably thinking on a, a micro level, he is making very clear sort of the long phrases. Breath, right? I get all the notes there. I'm like, don't criticize me, please. Um, but he's he is sort of driving through that big phrase, and then you get a breath. And in between there, that rhythm just is lockstep, which is what you'd hope for in a dance. And I like it too. So I like both approaches. Um, there's probably going to be a performance expert out there, a professorly type person who's going to say, oh, I think it should be played like that. But... Um, these are two, for me, valid interpretations. I'm going to end the podcast with uh, the Yo-Yo Ma, the uh, comparison, because I, I think they're interesting. I'll first play the older one from 1983, and then I'll play the new one from 2018, give you a taste of one person's changes in interpretation, and uh, hopefully you'll be listening for some of the things that I've articulated here, that legato style versus separation. And Wisp Away was, had that separation going for him. Um, thinking about uh, sort of the type of phrasing, right? Are we doing long phrases? Are we sort of chopping it up into smaller phrase groups? Uh, what will Yo-Yo Ma do? I'll let you listen and decide for yourself. And I'm going to go ahead and thank you for listening. My name is John Hendren. You can find more of these podcasts, Bachcast, at my website, bieberfan.org. That's spelled B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N dot O-R-G. And before you turn it off, we have two excerpts from Yo-Yo Ma. Thank you.